0: You're listening to Jennifer Stock with Ocean Currents, a new show coming here to KWMR where we'll focus our topics about ocean ecology and biology and all the different amazing marine research that's happening out here in the ocean, not just in the Pacific, but worldwide. About 75% of our planet is ocean. So truly, we're talking about planet ocean here and all the topics that we'll be talking about. Here on the central California coast, we are blessed to live at the edge of one of the most productive marine ecosystems in the world. This is where we'll be um, bringing exciting research and exploration that's taking place. Um, Also, what's happening in the three contiguous national marine sanctuaries that are managed by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Right out here, Monterey Bay, Gulf of the Farallones, and Cordell Bank. All of which we'll be talking about on this show. So today, we're going to be talking about the big blue, the big open ocean, and we're going to be speaking with a biological oceanographer, Dr. David Heirenbach, who I'm going to bring live on the air. David, are you there? David, are you live on the air?
1: Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, great.
0: Great. I would like to introduce a little bit of your background to our audience, and uh, feel free to jump in if I'm I'm bragging a little bit too much, but David is... um, a biological oceanographer with Duke University in North Carolina. He's a research scientist. And currently, David is a visiting scholar at the Parrish Lab in the School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences at the University of Washington. David's expertise lies in the habitats of far-ranging marine vertebrates. Those are animals with backbones for some of us that may not be familiar. And the conservation of pelagic open ocean Ecosystems. He is interested in the physical mechanisms that define predictable foraging hotspots in the pelagic system and how we can combine natural history and oceanography to design appropriate management plans in marine protectant areas in the open ocean. David has experience with satellite telemetry, of which we're going to talk a little bit about today, to understand the, ecolog- the ecology of some of these highly migratory pelagic species, such as marine birds. I was lucky to meet David about six years ago while he was doing some work locally here. And he told me about some um, big birds that come all the way from across the Pacific right here locally offshore to Cordell Bank and Point Reyes and, to feed. And I was completely astounded by the stories he was telling about a uh, black-footed albatross that traveled from its breeding ground from the northwestern Hawaiian Islands all the way here to Cordell Bank a couple times. So I'm hoping David will talk a little bit about that today, because this is a common occurrence from what we understand. Um, so here we are. David, thank you so much for joining us. We're so lucky to have you um, call in and talk a little bit about your experience, because so few of us actually have any encounters with these amazing vertebrates traveling all over the ocean. And since this is your your lifestyle and your experience,
1: we're so thrilled to have you. Yeah, thank you very much, Um First of all, I want to congratulate you for uh, this really cool radio program. I think you told me today is the first day. I'm very proud, privileged to be um, your first invited uh, person. And, uh, yeah, um, I'm really pumped up to tell you about um, all these amazing animals that are coming right to your backyard um, from all throughout the North Pacific Ocean. As you said, they come uh, at different times of the year as part of their life cycle migrations to, to use some of the very productive waters that occur right there off Cordell Bank and the Gulf of the Farallons and the, the Monterrey Bay Canyon. Um, so let's see, uh, you started out saying some of the reasons why, why I'm interested in the ocean, so um, maybe I can elaborate a little bit on, the, on that, why, why the open ocean is such a fascinating place to study
0: yeah um, could you also back up a little bit yeah. and tell us how you got how you got interested in that as well and your career with your um, degree in, in biological oceanography Just tell us a little bit about your yeah. initial interests and then okay. let 's go into a little bit more of the research that you've you've yeah. been going through
1: sounds very good so um, first i 'll tell you what a biological oceanographer means it 's a very uh, almost pompous name, but basically what it means is I study biological processes in the ocean. Um, So what this means, biological processes, it's interactions between animals and the ocean. So for example, how does the temperature of the water affect the growth rate of of an animal that lives immersed in that water, or how does the temperature and the movement of the water, the currents affect how food is produced and how animals find that food, how they make a living, how then the food webs get set up in the ocean, and eventually how the energy flows from the sun via the photosynthesis into the plants at the basis of the food web, which is the the phytoplankton, these tiny microscopic animals, little plants that are floating around in the ocean, Um, and and going up and down the water column. How these little plants get produced, things eat them, bigger things eat the planktonic grazers, like the little cows of the ocean that eat this primary production, and how all that eventually leads up to the big animals like the big whales, the tunas, the swordfish, the sharks, the seabirds that are eating fish and squid and plankton way up in the food chain. So basically, that's what it means. We're trying to look at all the connections between the animals and the environment, and then of some animals with those animals that eat them, and also with their prey.
0: It's excellent. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's wonderful to hear because I think the. The vastness of the huge Pacific Ocean, just the Pacific alone, for so many people, it's just so unfathomable. And it's wonderful to bring some of this information to our listeners and to, and to schools and the public. And that's somewhat my role as the education and outreach coordinator for Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary is to bring this stuff to the light. Because so many of us are not going to have experiences hundreds of miles from shore and have no idea that there is so much life out there
1: that's right yeah you know and as you say many people don't don't really have a chance to go out and experience really the the open ocean like you say hundreds of kilometers away from the coastline where you have this very very large features different currents bringing different types of water together different habitats moving along changing very fast in time and in space but um Yeah, I think the really critical thing is when you go out to the open ocean for people who have, say, flown on a plane from California to Hawaii or gone on a cruise, you know, out in the open ocean, you look out the window and often the sea looks really boring. You know, it looks very empty. It's all the same, clear blue. You almost think, well, you know, it looks like a a big desert that doesn't seem to be pattern or, or, you know, um, any predictable features that the animals can use you know if you think of a forest for example right you know you see the trees then there's the understory bushes you know there's gaps in the tree in the canopy you go there year after year and the forest is in the same place there's some changes but it seems to be you know a a feature that you can you can recognize you can revisit right
0: Tell, definitely. I completely agree. And from my experience coming out to sea, I've had an opportunity to participate on some of the sanctuary-led cruises out here, is that there'll be days where there's just not a whole lot going on. And then all of a sudden, there's birds attacking the water, and the, and there's marine mammals coming from all over the place. And it's, it's definitely the surface feeders, those animals that are coming on the top of the water, that are giving us signals about what's going on underneath but I imagine that's a little bit hard to do um, hundreds of kilometers away when we can't necessarily see them on a boat because, you know, getting out on and spending time on the water costs money and takes lots of time. And there's so many um, adverse um, reasons why we don't get out there as often as we'd like to. But I understand there are quite a few different tools that oceanographers such as yourself use to learn about, the open ocean processes and some of the animals that are on them, can you talk a little bit about some of the tools that you've used and are using to learn a little bit more about this open area?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, Okay, so let's see. Our research um, is motivated by three main questions, I think. The first one is, like you say, the ocean looks very heterogeneous, which means very very different as you move along in space, and also it changes from season to season, from year to year. And we want to understand how do these animals make a living in this very complicated and dynamic, this very changing environment. Okay, how do they find food? Mm -hmm. How do they find their way to migrate across this vast landscape? Um, Then also because, you know, I'm an oceanographer, I want to learn about how the whole ocean ecosystem functions. And if we study some of the animals at the top of the food chain, that take advantage of all those other steps that have happened underneath involving the little plants the phytoplankton and the zooplankton all the way up as the energy flows up to the the prey that they can eat if we study the animals at the top we have a good feeling that we can understand what is happening below right what are the mechanisms that are producing the food that they're using. Right. So that's another reason to, to focus on some of these big animals that range very far and, and live very long and, and feed on top of the food chain. And then I think the third reason is, you know, um, a lot of these big animals that live for really long are impacted by human activities. But they're killed in fisheries by mistake or they absorb pollution in the environment or they've been harvested in the past without really good, good management. So more and more our work is geared towards understanding how are these populations affected by people and are they recovering in those instances where impacts have been stopped. Okay, so, so how do we do this? How do we answer these three questions? Um, like you said, a lot of the time we go on ships, um, and it's very, very convenient because even though it's very expensive, uh, I'll give you a sense that one day of ship time can cost anywhere between $10,000 and $30,000. depends on whether you have an icebreaker that is very expensive or a smaller non-icebreaker type boat. Um, so we go out on ships and we make all these different measurements. Remember, we're trying to understand the whole ecosystem. So some people measure the physics of the ocean. What's the temperature of the ocean? What's the salinity? How much light penetrates into the sea? Other people measure the phytoplankton, other people measure the fish. We count the birds and the whales, and then we try to put it all together.
0: And a okay. lot of the putting together <laughs> doesn't that occur after the cruise is done and there's data processing, or how much of it is actually done while you're on the water
1: yeah. versus
0: you know an- analyzing all this data later on when you get back to land?
1: You know, um, a lot of it is actually done on the fly as we go because remember the you know in the ocean unlike on land the features are always changing. You know, you may be following a specific blob of water that you're interested, where there's a lot of productivity. And these things are moving along and changing shape and size. So we often process a lot of the information as we go and use pictures from satellites, other devices that give us big images of what the ocean looks in a very large area around where we are working with the ship to really get a sense of what's happening. Um, because again, when we take samples, we take very small, it's, it's almost like taking, um, like opening a tiny little window into the ocean and look peeping through a little hole, you know? And then we just have a, a very fast photograph of what's happening in a spot, but we need to understand what's going all around. So a lot of the processing of the data happens as we go, but then a lot of the, the really intense processing, like counting how many animals of different species were found in different net samples or, for example, um, a lot of the analysis that involve uh, adding isotopes to the water to look at how much the phytoplankton is growing, all those measurements can only be done in a lab setting. Mm-hmm. So often, you know, it takes months after we get back of processing and synthesizing of the information and then we have the ability to put all the pieces together. Um,
0: so what are some of the samples that you are collecting in the nets and and what is that for? For I mean, is that just to get samples of the prey that the the birds or the mammals might be eating while you're sampling in an area?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um for example, I'll give you I'll uh, talk a little bit about some work that we did up in the Bering Sea trying to understand how the productivity happens there in in late spring and early summer and how eventually that productivity leads up to food for shearwaters. These are birds, the short-tailed shearwater, that are coming all the way from Tasmania, south of Australia, every year. They fly all the way up to the Bering Sea. They're up there in spring, our spring, our summer, and in our fall, then they head back south. And we wanted to understand um, how how are some places really rich and productive in terms of producing food for these shearwaters, and other places don't seem to really produce the food that they need. And um, this happens both spatially, some areas um, around, say, the Pribilof Islands, some shallow places where there's a lot of nutrients being brought up to the surface lead to very large aggregations of krill, which are the little tiny shrimps that these birds are foraging on, uh, compared with other places where, you know, Apparently at this on the surface everything seems to be just like it was at the other spot where we had the big swarms of krill but there was no prey. Um so we were taking net toes. Um basically you you submerge this net in the water to a given depth. You have a device that tells you how much water is being filtered through this net so you can tell how much water you you are sort of collecting the uh, the plankton over and then the plankton gets all accumulated at the end of the net in what's called the cod end which is retrieved and then you do different things with it you figure out what is the volume of that amount of plankton you can also look at the weight of that amount of plankton and then you can also sort it you can separate it by species and by different age classes I and have you to can, you know I... get a sense
0: yeah, I have to say I, that is one of the most fun jobs to do. When I got to participate on one of our Cordell Bank Sanctuary cruises, we did some net toes at mm-hmm. night, and it's a tough shift. You start at ten o'clock at night and go all the way till four in the morning, so you don't really see the day, the yeah. daylight. Luckily, we had a full moon that that week, but. Just for some of the listeners that might not be familiar what's in the bottom of that net, but it is absolutely amazing the amounts of krill that you get. Mm-hmm. But you also get uh, tiny little zooplankton such as crab larvae. We got t- tons of dungeness crab larvae and all these funny shapes with these big eyes uh-huh. staring out at, uh-huh. at you and squid larvae. So I'm sure you're getting the same thing up there. And it's just absolutely fascinating to sort through it and and see the diversity that that's in the water where we can't see it. Yeah, a lot of those
1: creatures, they they look almost like extraterrestrials, you know, like that movie Alien. (laughs) Um, There are these these amphipods that live on jellyfishes, and actually some of them will burrow and eat a little hole in the jellyfish, and they live in there. Yes. Um, and they really look look scary. You're really grateful that they're, you know, barely <laughs> a, a couple centimeters big uh, because if they were, you know, six feet tall, they would be extremely scary looking.
0: We actually have some models of these plankton in our sanctuary office at Cordell Bank. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been down here recently, David, but we've got Models of these plankton, 6,000 times their real size on our ceilings. We have a 6-foot krill. If anyone wants to see that, come on down to our office over at the Red Barn. But um, I also just wanted to ask you again, are these sooty shearwaters that you're talking about that were coming up to the Bering Sea? Because they they come all the way up the coast of California as well, right?
1: You know, actually, the ones that go up into the Bering Sea are short-tailed shearwaters. They're very closely related to the sooty shearwaters. Okay. Uh, They both breed in the southern hemisphere. The Sudi-Share waters, like you say, they come all the way to California, Oregon, Washington, the Gulf of Alaska. But they don't seem to really go into the Bering Sea. And people right now, if they go out to um, anywhere along the coast of central California, um, you know, uh, places in Monterey Bay, or if they go out on a pelagic trip out to Cordell Bank, they should be able to see huge flocks of Sudi-Share waters right now. Right. Um, yeah, arriving and, you know making, just gorging themselves with with food in in the California current area.
0: That just blows me away. I I know that short-tailed shearwaters are one of many species that do these incredible migrations from Southern Hemisphere to Northern Hemisphere. But thinking about that movement, actually, that natural history behind that, how do they know that that's where they're supposed to go? How do seabirds know where they need to travel with that entire vastness of blue and ocean? What are some of the senses that sooty shearwaters, short-tailed shearwaters, all sorts of seabirds have in order to find out where they need to go to get food. It's kind of like me having to walk to New York to get a piece of pizza and come back to California.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, um, that is one of the biggest questions that motivates a lot of this tracking research where um, researchers will attach devices to animals like a radio transmitter, for example, or a little instrument that measures light intensity over the entire year that they're out in the ocean, and then you can recreate their path by by recreating the latitude and longitude where they were on a given day. And, um, you know, so, so we're spending a lot of time and energy mapping where the animals go at different times of the year, especially when they undergo these big migrations. Um, but, you know, to tell you the truth, um, there are so many different conflicting um, schools of thought, let's say. Uh, and potential senses that these animals are using to navigate those very big seascapes, um, that we don't yet have a really clear answer of, you know, they're using X or they're using Y. Um, I'll give you some examples. Most likely they're using a combination of senses, you know, and the, the evidence for this is there's been many studies where people glue, say, a magnet on top of an albatross head, <laughs> or on top of a turtle head. And the idea is that if these animals are using the magnetic field on the Earth, um, if you distort that magnetic field by putting a magnet on their head, they should not be able to find their way, mm-hmm. right? Well, whenever people do this, the you know, they have an albatross, say, on the colony, they put a magnet on its head, they put a transmitter on its back, the bird goes out to sea, and they always come back home.
0: <laughs> you yeah, know, and the researchers... Birds
1: sort of pull their hair, and and they wonder, and they sit around and question, um, but the birds always find their way. So most likely, you know, they're using more than one sense.
0: That is um, amazing.
1: You know, and also another thing to think about is, um, you know, the same way, like, when you go to get a a piece of pizza, let's say you're not going to New York, but maybe you're going to, like, Point Reyes from your house. You know, you have also, like, a shopping list of of rules that you use, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't put on top of your list get out the wallet and pay for the pizza, right? First, you have to say, okay, find my car keys (laughs) or find my bike helmet. Right. Right. Get on the bike, drive straight until I get to town, then look for the red building, go inside, find the pizza I want, and so forth, right? Right. So most likely these birds are using a similar hierarchy of decisions. You know, let's say if you were in Hawaii and you wanted to come to Cordell Bank, you know, maybe. The first rule would be, well, I need to move north. And, you know, maybe all it takes then is knowing where is north and where is south, which you can do either if you have a magnet in your head or you can do that by looking at the um, where the sun sets and when the sun comes out, right? Mm-hmm. So you can have a sense of where directions are that way. Then maybe another – then you could have a different rule where you say, wow, okay, you know, as I move north, the water is getting colder and it's getting greener. So that tells getting me closer, I'm getting, getting to a productive spot. Mm-hmm. Then once I see that, I switch my rules and then I look for, you know, for prey patches or I look for boats if I am looking for, you know, bait that I'm going to be stealing from boats, those kinds of things. So most likely they also do use a set of rules, you know. Interesting.
0: Um, yeah. So what are some of the, you're talking about some of this te- Well, magnets on the heads, that's definitely one tool that that sounds like it's been used and Mm -hmm. maybe still is being used. But you're also talking about tracking these birds. And this is where I, when I met you a couple years ago, you were absolutely amazing me in the fact that we were tagging birds and finding out where they're traveling all across the Pacific. And you've been involved in some albatross tagging, tagging studies here locally um, off-point raise with some collaborators. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this. I know that um, listeners might have heard about this show, this tagging study a couple of years ago, but it's still going on. I'd like to bring it, bring it back since you're about to embark um, tagging in another month or so.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so I'll, tell you, I'll start out telling you very briefly about the species we study, which is the black-footed albatross. And this is a very large-bodied bird. The wingspan is about two meters, which is about six feet, so about my height. And then they're about three kilos and a half, which is about seven to eight pounds. So they're they're very large-bodied birds. And um, when I first started studying them, I did so in Turn Island in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. Mm-hmm. And the really amazing thing is, at the time, um, we deployed these this little transmitters on their backs that would talk to satellites, the weather satellites and would allow us to follow the movements of the birds. So to give you a sense, Turn Island is about um, 4,500 kilometers from California, about 3,000 miles from California, from Central California, and about 3,200 kilometers from the Aleutians. Well, there were birds at this place in Turn Island that were regularly going to Central California and to the Aleutians to get food for their chicks.
0: <laughs> during While the chick is waiting for them, of course, to That's
1: come back. That's right. So the chick was in the nest, the, let's say, husband and wife birds <laughs> were going out to sea, and they were spending up to 24 days out at sea, coming all the way, for the case of the black-footed albatross that I'm talking about, coming all the way to California, going to Cordell Bank waters, Monterey Bay, Gulf of the Farallons, going a little bit up into B.C and then going back home and feeding the baby. And then doing sometimes short trips right around the Hawaiian Islands. Those were about two days, three days. So again, exploiting very, very different habitats and over a very vast expanse of the North Pacific.
0: And this is happening right now. They're breeding currently right now in the Northwestern Hawaiians, correct?
1: That's right. This pattern that I'm describing happened between February and June. Then at the end of June, the adults leave the colony and the babies are, are left. They're very fat at the time. They lose some weight. And then eventually, I think, when hunger really gets them motivated, the chicks will actually fly away and then go out to sea for about four to six years until they come back to the colonies to reproduce. That's absolutely amazing. It's pretty amazing. And to give you an example, there was, um, there was one bird that we captured um, in February. Of Southern California, of uh, San Diego, and this bird was really dark. It was a black-footed albatross that looked really dark. So we thought it looked like a really young bird, and we, we grabbed them off the water, looked at the metal band that the Fish and Wildlife Service people had put on this bird, and we found out that this bird, the previous July, had been banded when it couldn't fly in Turn Island. Uh uh-huh. So between that February when it was banded, then in July it left the next February, when we caught it, the bird had come all the way from Hawaii to California, where it was you know it had found this very productive place, part of the ocean, and it was you know sitting there making a living <laughs> um you know in three or four more years, it would eventually go back to breed. but as you can imagine, this part of their life is really poorly understood.
0: Amazing. You know, um, we're, you know, we're just coming up on the half hour, and I'd like to take a short break, David. Okay. And then when we come back, I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, some of the tagging that's been going on right off of California here, off the sanctuaries. Uh, yeah. Right out of Cordell Bank. But I'd just like to let our listeners know that they're listening to KWMR in Point Ray Station on 90.5 FM and 89.3 in Bolinas and this show is called Ocean Currents with Jennifer Stock. We're going to take a short break and when we come back we'll continue talking with David Heirenbach. You're listening to Jennifer Stock with Ocean Currents and we're talking with Dr. David Heirenbach, a uh, research scientist, research biological oceanographer out of Duke University and I'm going to bring David back on and David let's Let's go back and talk about those albatross again, because I actually have quite a bit of an obsession with them, as many of the listeners out here in West Marin might know. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit again about um, that bird you saw off San Diego. And also, let's talk about the tagging that's taking place right off here at, at Cordell Bank.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty obsessed about them, too, so I'm happy to keep talking <laughs> about it. So, um, okay, so like I was, I was saying, um, I was trying to build this picture stating how important The waters of Cordell Bank, Gulf of the Farallons, and Monterrey Bay are for black-footed albatrosses during the breeding season. When again, they're flying from the Northwest Hawaiian Islands all the way to the shelf area, this productive region of Central California, feeding and then bringing food back to the colony to feed their chicks. So, you know, this was documented using satellite tracking, right? Mm -hmm. Instruments that get glued on the back of the bird with tape with this heavy duty adhesive tape and then talk to the satellite and the researchers eventually get a little email from the bird basically <laughs> that says, Hello, I am bird number five and on Monday at this time I was at this position.
0: That's so nice. And I of went them here to do and I went here and I went here.
1: Yeah, it's really addictive to get these emails from the birds. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. So um so anyway, so this was documented during the breeding season and then this goes again from January till the end of June In July, the adults leave the colony, and nobody really knows where they go. From ships, we know that we see albatrosses all the way throughout the North Pacific, you know, from a little bit south of Hawaii all the way to uh, the Bering Sea, and from Japan to California. But nobody had ever followed individuals, only using bands. But a band only tells you one point, you know, the point where the animal was banded and the point where the animal was maybe killed in a fishery or it was collected by scientists. So not a lot of information, you know, just a straight line, Mm -hmm. separated by often years. Mm -hmm. But now with the satellite tracking technology, we can actually get very, very fine maps of where animals are. We can get about 10 to 12 locations per day. So we can start mapping places where they travel very fast. So they're basically going to the store. They're commuting through. We can map places where they slow down, where they turn a lot, so they're maybe looking for food. You know, we're really getting a good sense of how they make a living.
0: Also, you're getting a better sense of where they're spending most of their time in the ocean. And from what I understand, uh, black-footed albatross and other albatrosses are actually quite endangered, according to the IUCN. The which, What does the IUCN stand for again? International?
1: It's the International Union for the Conservation, Conservation of Nature. That's right yeah and um you're right actually more and more remember the three reasons i mentioned early on of why we study these animals the third reason is because more and more we are realizing that they are in trouble for a variety of reasons and we also want to know whether they will be in trouble in the future given you know scenarios of of global warming and things like that so albatrosses are really being hard hit um like you said there's about 21 recognized species right now of albatrosses worldwide and 19 of them are listed in this IUCN list. Um so it's it's a pretty bad record. And the problem is you know like like I said they live really really long so they reproduce infrequently. Not they don't breed every year. It takes them a really long time to to go through um adolescence if you will and and start reproducing. Um and, you know, they they are being hit by things like fisheries bycatch, the incidental mortality in fisheries like long lines. And also because they live so long, they take a lot of pollutants and they eat a lot of plastics and things like that, which, you know, in the long term can, can have a really detrimental effect on these birds.
0: Yeah, I want to get into the plastic thing a little bit, Um, but this coming July, you're going to start tagging with Mm -hmm. um, a group called Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, They're one of the collaborators on this project, and you're going to be tagging how many birds and where are you going to be um, doing it from?
1: Okay, um, this will be the third year that we do this, and what we've been doing is in collaboration with Cordell Bank. so we've been going out with the sanctuary boat to right on top of Cordell Bank, where there's a lot of black-footed albatrosses in July. And we we take some birds, we glue a tag on them, and we see how they move around anywhere from one to about, we've our tracks so far have been one to two months long. Um, we did nine birds in 2004 and 2005, and then this year we're gonna do 10 more, starting at the very beginning of July. And uh, the really cool thing is that anybody can go and look at the tracks of these birds on real life. You know, every day, the new positions get plotted. You can look at the spaghetti loops of how they're moving around.
0: I love this, actually. This is one way, because I'm unfortunately um, sitting in an office quite a bit, doing lots of different types of work. But one thing I look forward to every day this time of year is being able to check in and see, where is so-and-so today? And it, it always brings up questions to me as to, I wonder why they went there. And um, following I'm wondering if there's food there and if there's other, lots of bir- other birds there. It's really exciting to do. And you can do that off of a website, cor- correct? You're collaborating with a website to do that?
1: Yeah, I think the, the best place where listeners could go is um, if they go to the Oikonos website. I'm going to spell it out for you. Mm-hmm. There you can find links to the tracking from the last two years archived. And you can also follow day by day the progression of the new birds we're going to track. Excellent. And there's a lot of background information and information about plastics and things like that. Okay, so if you have your pencils ready, the address is www.oikonos.org. And the best thing is to go to the What's New page and all the updates will be posted there. Excellent. Yeah.
0: So there'll be a link from the Oikonos webpage to the, I think it's seaturtle.org, where you can log in and, and get an email update every day, right? That's
1: right. I think th- that may be the easiest shortcut. Um, otherwise, you could also go to the seaturtle.org, like you mentioned. Website. I've
0: done that one before, and it's yeah. actually really difficult to actually find okay. the bird project. So definitely go to Oikonos. Yeah. But I, you've, So you've been doing this for three years. And three now years. Three years. You've got some birds that you've seen, some of the track lines of where they've gone, and where where is the farthest distances that you've seen so far just during that period of time when they're tagged from Cordell in July?
1: Okay, um, so we've had so far 18 birds. Nine were males and nine females. And the farthest these birds have gone in about two months' time is all the way to Hokkaido Japan. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, it's really amazing. There's actually, if you... If your readers can get the Hydrosphere newsletter from the National Marine Sanctuaries, the Spring 2005 issue has a little story with a map showing the travels of one of these albatrosses from the first year, Uh, Zubenel Genubi, Uh. (laughs) who went. This bird was tagged on August 8th in Cordell Bank. And September 22nd, it was north of Hokkaido making its way to the uh, Kuril Islands. This is over 7,000 kilometers away. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, really incredible. And, you know, the really amazing thing, like you were saying earlier, is that, you know, the United States has jurisdiction of a a very fine sliver of ocean that surrounds Hawaii and some of the other territories and the mainland. This Mm -hmm. is the exclusive economic zone. This is only 200 miles long. Well, these birds are coming in and out of that zone. They're going into Japanese waters, Russian waters, Mexican waters, Canadian waters. Um, And, you know, by doing so, they are becoming becoming susceptible to a lot of unregulated fisheries out in the open ocean, you know, where they spend about 60% of their time. So I think knowing where the birds go and how they spend their time and how different countries are responsible for their ranges of the birds and for the places where their national fisheries overlap with those birds, I think it's a very powerful tool to, to motivate conservation collaborations across countries to protect these birds.
0: That's wonderful. So you're yeah. probably using a lot of these results towards looking at better ways to manage these areas that are hard to... To manage because they're not in the economic exclusive zone, exclusive economic zone for the U.S. the EEZ. So you probably are taking these um, findings to different research presentations and organizations. And how about how do we, how are you taking these types of results internationally? And, and maybe you're not there yet since it's very early on. But what would be the process you do to start working internationally with them?
1: With well, those? you know, um, we've been very fortunate. Um, to work with um, a person called Kim Rivera who is uh, a NOAA representative in charge of seabird bycatch issues and she she is very excited about pushing forward international cooperation with other countries to to work across these jurisdictional boundaries and with her um, we've been making our information available to what are called regional fishery management organizations um, these are, These are international management organizations where different countries get together to manage a specific fishery in a specific part of the ocean. Um, A a very famous example of this is what's called the Inter-American Tropical Tuna Commission. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware of the tuna dolphin controversy that happened in the tropical Pacific. Mm -hmm. Uh, This issue was managed by this Inter-American Tropical Tuna Commission. So the same thing, you know, we are making our information available to these fishery organizations. And the idea is that if we empower them, if we tell them where the birds go and we show them that they're responsible for their protection and conservation, then we're putting the ball on their court. And then they, through their member countries, can push forward agreements to monitor, say, incidental mortality, to figure out how much discards, how much... Um, food, refuse from processing fish they're putting over the side, and these birds are eating, those kinds of things. So it's a nice way to get countries involved across boundaries in in the management of the entire ecosystem and the protection of the birds.
0: I know for short-tailed albatross, which are severely endangered, um, up in, is it Alaska, where they have a certain catch limit that a certain amount of birds, if they're caught,
1: then the fishery shuts down. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So you see, this is a, another way again to put the the ball on the court of the fishery organizations by telling them where the birds are concentrating. Then they can try to put in place management regimes to try to not kill the birds. And often there are it's sort of a stick and carrot approach. There'll be the carrot is you give information of where the birds are so they can be avoided, and the stick is. If a given number of birds are killed in the fishery in a given amount of time, like a year, then some of the fisheries may be closed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the idea is to work to work you know across disciplines and to try to to, to try to share information and ideas as much as possible. And you you mentioned international um, meetings and things like that. There's been a lot of work. We have um, a workshop in October where people who study highly migratory birds are all getting together to share information about where their species go. And there's another big, big effort from BirdLife International to make a big database of all the species that are being tracked to highlight places where, where they go and places where a lot of different species are using. Because, you know, if you have more reasons to protect a given part of the ocean because more species visit it, the more likely that part of the ocean will actually be protected. Excellent. So that's the rationale, you know, behind this effort.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to take a break here to let people know they're listening to KWMR and Point Reyes Station at 90.5 FM and 89.3 in Bolinas. You're listening to Ocean Currents. We're talking with Dr. David Harenbach, a researcher, who is doing uh, lots of interesting work on the open ocean with seabirds. Um, So, David, there sounds like a lot of this work is very related to uh, fisheries information since that is one of the larger threats of open ocean birds and seabirds, especially those albatrosses since they are surface feeders and are looking and smelling for all that bait. But um, I know there's other threats that are much more human-induced by folks on land that they don't even realize it Mm -hmm. with with, uh, marine debris being the big one. And that's something I've been working with Oikonos a little bit at and producing some education programs and and curriculum to to bring attention to the the harshness of marine debris on the open ocean and the effect on marine wildlife, but can you talk a little bit about some of the information you 've been working with we 've been talking about plastics, and um, I know that from my Um, work with the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands Coral Reef Ecosystem Reserve staff and the uh, fish and wildlife out there. We've become buddies and they share some of their information with me in regards to uh, what they're seeing on the islands in regards to what the birds are regurgitating and Mm -hmm. these boluses, this uh, somewhat of an owl pellet with plastic in it. And I know you've helped us here producing some materials too with plastic. So can you talk a little bit about what we're learning and, and where we're going and what we can possibly do on land to prevent marine debris.
1: Yeah. Before I do that, I just want to say that, you know, fisheries are receiving a lot of attention mm-hmm. and uh, the high seas, industrial type fisheries, the problems of birds with those fisheries are getting fixed with a variety of new management regimes. But like you say, there's two, two big problems that are sort of looming. One is coastal fisheries, coastal gillnets, very small boats, artisanal fisheries, a bunch of, you know, two, three people going out on a small boat using gillnets in coastal waters. This is a problem for turtles and sharks and birds in many, many parts of the Pacific Ocean. But, you know, this is going to take a lot of effort to fix. And people have very little ability to do something about it in the United States because we don't have these kinds of fisheries really operating in our waters we can take um we can take um care of this issue as consumers
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know making sure we buy fish products that are harvested in a in an environmentally sensitive way not using destructive techniques another big threat where we can do more i think as citizens of the united states is the issue of plastic plastics are pervasive in our society They're very long-lived, and they end up in the ocean. And when they end up in the ocean, a lot of these animals, like you mentioned, surface feeders, a lot of these albatrosses, other similar species like fulmars and storm petrels that feed at the surface by pecking individual pieces of food. These birds get confused. You know, they've lived in the ocean for a very, very long time when there were no plastics around, and now they're faced with all this debris And they just pick it up as if it was a piece of food. Um, And this is a really big, big problem. To give you an example of how pervasive this problem is throughout the world, I'm going to give you a couple statistics that are really staggering. Mm -hmm. So a lot of um, work has been done in in the North Sea. There's this bird called the northern fulmars, like a little albatross. There, they, uh, people went out and they picked up dead birds from beaches. And that's something that people can, can participate in, for example, programs to monitor the health of the ocean mm-hmm. by doing beach walks, for instance. So as part of one of these programs in Europe, they found that 95% of all the fulmars they found dead on beaches had plastic in their stomachs.
0: Oh, my God! And there was
1: one case which was just, it's mind-blowing. This one bird that was retrieved from Denmark had 21 grams of plastic oh. in its belly. Oh, my God! It's not a lot. But if you think of how small these birds are, right. if you scale this up to a person, it would have been comparable to you or I having two kilograms, four pounds, four and a half pounds of plastic in our stomachs. Wow. You see, it's, it's just incredible. You know, so...
0: And we don't exactly know... We probably can imagine that some birds are probably dying because they're not going to get any real food in there because their bellies are so full of, of plastic, but we're probably just starting to learn a little bit more about the long-term effects on their reproductive ability with those plastics in them.
1: Yeah, it's been very difficult to, to do these kinds of studies because, again, these birds live for a really, really long time, and now so many of them have already plastics in their stomach that it's not just whether they do or don't have plastic. Say for albatross babies, like you said, the Laysan and Blackfoots, if you look at the pellets, those little um, little balls almost like... A, the bolus? Yeah, the boluses, those little pellets of undigestible material mm-hmm. that they regurgitate. Usually they have squid beaks that they cannot digest. 100% of those contain plastic. So now we know all the chicks have plastic in their stomachs, and it's really hard then to really say to what extent is the plastic Killing them, mm-hmm. you see, because it's such a pervasive effect. Um, and, you know, on top of that, there's variability. In some years, there's more food than others, and some parents are better parents than others, and things like that. And we cannot do experiments where we force feed plastic to chicks to see what happens with them. So, you know, it, it's a difficult phenomenon to really characterize, but I think there's more and more research going into this problem to quantify how much debris and plastic there is in the ocean how much the birds and other wildlife are ingesting of this debris and, and the, the effects
0: The plastic is mm-hmm. coming I would from what I understand the majority of marine debris that we find on our beaches is from land-based sources coming through watersheds
1: That's right the the United Nations did a big study of this problem in the early 90s and they estimated that about 80% of all the human-made debris is, excuse me, of all the debris in the ocean comes from people activities, mm-hmm. from land activities by people. Um, so basically, yeah, you know, when you, you know, you have your Coke and you drop the little bottle top, the red bottle top out the window of your car when you're driving around or you're careless and it, you know, whatever, it falls out of your backpack or something, then it it rains, it goes down the drain, it eventually ends up in a stream that takes it to a bay that then the currents pick it up they take it out to sea and then it ends up on the belly of an albatross you know um
0: i i we're just about have about three minutes left so mm -hmm. i want to wrap it up here but that's i want to tell you one of the things we're doing out here and it's happening all over is lots of folks are doing much more um many more beach cleanups than ever than Mm -hmm. before which is wonderful and it's for us, it's we know that there's more out there, and we pick it off the beach, more is going to come the next day. But we're constantly trying to impact on visitors and, and folks that participate that they can participate in helping at home. They don't have to come mm-hmm. to the beach and just cleaning up near their storm drains or right. at school or at work. And that is more empowering than actually getting out to the beach and picking it up there because you're just preventing it from entering mm-hmm. the, the, the watershed, which is... One of the o- one of the biggest things that we can do as well as reducing the amount of plastic that we use. Um, David, this has been so fabulous to have you on the show, and I can envision having you back again to go further into some of this plastic stuff because we didn't even get to, to touch on that as much as that I'd like to. But is there any last words or, or recommendations or websites you'd like to add before we sign off? And, um
1: you know, I would, I would like to tell the readers, I mean the readers, the <laughs> listeners, to please um, visit the Oikonos website and follow the birds online. And uh, if you if you want to help fix some of these problems, there's three things you can do. First, you can read. You can learn about what the problems are. Find out the scope of these issues in the ocean throughout the world. You can make better decisions as a consumer. Make sure you buy clean environmental fish. Make sure your garbage doesn't end up on, on streams and the ocean. And also you can be a source of inspiration for other people, you know, because often this problem seems so big. But if we all do as much as we can and we inspire other people to participate, and do something about it, I think together we can you know, we can really make a difference.
0: David, thank you so much. You're an inspiration, actually, to us, and working with you in the Sanctuary Program has been wonderful, especially with the education um, help that you've been giving me and Carol Kuiper at Oikonos. It's been fabulous working with you, and I just want to thank you so much for talking f- with us about albatrosses and open ocean studies. It's really quite exciting, and I can't wait to have you again on the show.
1: I look forward to coming back maybe once her tracking is done. Oh yeah, uh, that's true. I congratulate you for a really cool show.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. I'll be talking to you soon.
1: Okay, bye bye. All right. Bye.
0: I wanna thank everybody for listening and tuning in to listen to David Harenbach. This has been really fascinating to talk with him. I always love hearing about things that I don't have a lot of exposure to and David's certainly been wonderful at bringing those to us. So I want to sign off and we'll see you in about four weeks.